Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so Daniel chapter 2. Everybody, it's after Ezekiel, if you got your Bibles, Daniel chapter 2. And we started last week, and um, if you guys remember, the whole issue last week was Daniel and his three buddies, I guess you call them buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were brought to Babylon, some 900 miles away from Jerusalem, and they were indoctrinated, or attempted to be indoctrinated by King Nebuchadnezzar for this three-year process where they were going to learn a new language. They, their names were changed. Um, Daniel and his friends did not eat the food that was served to them. They ate the vegetables and the water, and God blessed them. And so we basically end with the chapter of God sovereignly being in charge of those, those young men's lives. And then they were about 14 or 15 years old, 15, 16 years old is what most scholars believe. So tonight, I want to begin by talking about an eccentric figure from the 20th century. How many of you guys have ever heard of a man named Howard Hughes? Oh, yeah. Howard Hughes. Okay, some, anybody ever heard of him? Okay. He was an eccentric man. He was one of the most colorful men of the 20th century. Uh, he was a pilot. He was a big movie producer. He was a playboy. He was one of the, mo the wealthiest men in the world. He was the aviation genius who designed and built the Spruce Goose. Okay? He had everything this life had to offer. He, he was a man that basically had women, had money, but he lived in Las Vegas, and he was a very paranoid man. As being a powerful rich man, he was paranoid. And by the end of his life, he lived in darkened rooms, and he wore Kleenex boxes on his feet for shoes. And he would only get his hair cut and his nails trimmed once a year. And he was heavily addicted to prescription drugs. And he, he never actually settled down in a home. Actually, he lived from hotel to hotel until the, the hotel manager said, you've got to move on, you've lived here too long. And then he would just like buy the hotel because he could do it. Um, but here was the issue. He was obsessed with Baskin-Robbins banana nut ice cream. Okay, And his aides realized that Baskin-Robbins stopped carrying it. And they were horror-stricken. They didn't know what to do because they thought he was going to freak out. So they went to Baskin-Robbins, and they bought 350 gallons of a special order, shipped directly to Las Vegas so that he would not be out of his banana nut Baskin-Robbins ice cream. Well, the day after the ice cream arrived, he flippantly announced that he was tired of banana nut and only wanted <laughs> vanilla. <laughs> so Howard Hughes is a picture of what might be one of the wealthiest men to ever live in the 20th century. One of the most influential, powerful men, but he was pegged, plagued by paranoia, drug addiction, and eccentric behavior. And he was a man who supposedly had it all, but he was living in illusion. Now, why do I bring up Howard Hughes to you? Why do I bring up a powerful, wealthy man that was paranoid? Well, that describes King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. And we will see these character traits in one of the most powerful, wealthy men to have ever lived in history, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you know he's famous for the hanging gardens in Babylon. He was a man of unlimited power, wealth, influence, and resources, yet 
he was a man who was plagued by fear and paranoia. Isn't that interesting that if people that have everything there is this life has to offer, it's never enough. They just live in fear that somebody's going to take it away from them or they live in paranoia. There's never any real contentment. So if you've got your Bibles, let's look at Daniel chapter 2. And we're going to take this in chunks tonight. So we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Everybody there? Daniel chapter 2, 1 through 13. Okay, so um, by this time, Daniel and his friends are in the court of the king. So let's pick up in chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood by the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell the servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and was very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Okay, so we're going to see a striking contrast tonight between King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, two character studies in this passage of Scripture. So first we're going to focus in on um, Nebuchadnezzar. So this passage of Scripture is divided up into three parts. Okay, the first is on King Nebuchadnezzar, the second part focuses on Daniel, and the third part focuses on the, this bizarre dream. And so, before we lose the forest for the trees, what's the overall point of this passage of Scripture? It's simply this. The overall theme of this chapter is God's kingdom will prevail over the kingdoms of this world. God's kingdoms. Now, that's important to remember in our day and age. Because what are we tempted to think in our day and age? Satan's winning. Evil's on the rise. Everything's terrible. God's not on his throne. Woe is me. We're, we're sunk. We can have that attitude. But we need to realize that God's kingdoms will prevail over the kingdoms of this world. So, we see Nebuchadnezzar living in paranoia. And so, we're given some descriptions about how this king responds to this dream. The first thing is the king is gripped by insecurity. He's we don't know what the dream is yet. We'll, we'll get there, but he's troubled by the dream. He's tossing and turning. He, he's the most powerful man in the world at this time, and he's tossed and turned, and he's upset by one simple dream. He can't shake it, and it's, it's causing him problems. 
And so, if there ever was a man that wouldn't, you think wouldn't have insecurity, it would be the king. I got a harem of women. Okay, I'll just bring the women in it to like snap my finger. If, if, I, if I want women, I'll get women. If I want food, I'll get food. If I want gold, I'll get gold. If I want money, I'll get money. All I need to do is just snap my finger and I can have all these things. Okay, what's the one thing he didn't have? The one thing this man did not have was, is that showing up there or is it coming off the page? Okay, it's on your sheet though. What did this confused, paranoid, panic-stricken king need or what did he lack? peace. He had no peace. There's a lot of irony in that because we tend to think that the things we have will give us peace. Our job, our 401k, a person, a, a career, a hobby, and, and we can hold on to these things. And if we're not careful, here's what often happens with Christians. You can make those things become what, what I would call a functional savior. And what I mean by that is, you wouldn't outright say, Jesus isn't my Savior anymore, but how you hold on to those things, those things have become for you basically what you're putting your trust in to give you purpose and meaning besides Jesus. And if those things are taken away from you, you lack peace. Now, as Christians, what does Jesus give us? Jesus tells us in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus gives us peace. Now, I love this passage of Scripture for two reasons. Well, a lot of reasons, but Philippians 4, 6-7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what I like about this passage of Scripture. God promises to give you peace. But do you notice what that passage of Scripture doesn't say? It doesn't tell you how God answers the prayer. It just says pray, and when you pray, the peace will come. Now, God is sovereign over how he answers our prayers. Sometimes God may say yes. Sometimes God may say no. Sometimes God may say, wait. Or sometimes God may say, I refuse to even answer that prayer because it's not according to my will. So God is sovereign over how he does that. But in the midst of your praying, your anxiety, God will give you peace. This king does not have peace. Now, stylistically, we talked about this last week, literarily, if that's a word. This is the only book predominantly in the Old Testament that's written in two languages. Hebrew and Aramaic. Hebrew is the Israelite language. Aramaic is the Gentile language. So one thing you need to know is that in verse 4, verse 4 there, chapter 2, verse 4, it switches from Hebrew to Aramaic. So for the next few chapters, it's going to be in a foreign language to the Israelites. And most scholars believe Daniel, when he was old writing this, because he had been in the court for so long speaking Aramaic, it just was his natural language. But it does focus on the Gentile situation. And then later on, when he switches back to Hebrew, it focuses on the nation of Israel. So that there is a reason for that. So number one, he is insecure. He is paranoid. What is this dream? It's freaking me out. But then number two, he's crippled by an unrealistic hostility. He's enraged. What does he really want these enchanters and these magicians to do? 
interpret my dream, but I'm not going to tell you what, what the dream is. That'd be like, okay, read my mind. What am I thinking right now? And if you don't tell me what I'm thinking, I'm going to kill you. That's basically what he says. If you don't interpret my dream, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. I'm going to destroy your houses. Tell me what, I'm, tell me what my dream is. Well, can you give us a clue, Nebuchadnezzar? Can you, can you give us some help? No, you got to interpret it for me. Basically, read my mind. If you don't read my mind, then you are going to die. That's pretty paranoid that he would basically tear them limb from limb. And, and so everything you need to know is there in verse 9. He thinks the whole world's conspired against him. If you do not make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. He's paranoid. He's suspicious. He's troubled. He's hostile. He is out of control. Now, he represents this kingdom of this world. What characterizes this world that we live in? Is there hostility? Is there lack of peace? Is there fear? Is there confusion? Is there paranoia? Yes. So we need to understand that the Bible speaks of two ages. There is this present age and the age to come. So we're living in this present age. What are some characteristics of this present age in which we live? Well, one issue is that lost people are blinded by Satan who's called the God of this age. The God of this age, lowercase g. Satan has blinded, it says there in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In their case, the God of this world, the God of this age, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So there is a blindness that people have. This age is also marked by materialism and greed. Would you guys agree with that? 1 Timothy 6, 17-19, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of which is truly life. So this age is marked by materialism. This age is marked by blindness to the glory of God. This age is also marked by a total lack of knowledge and understanding. Have you noticed that people are acting more and more insane? And I, I'm, not, I'm just saying that, and I'm not being facetious when I say that. You look at our culture and there's just some unhealthy, in, unbalanced behavior that people are demonstrating. And it seems like to be more on a, on a higher level. There's just not a lot of knowledge and not a lot of understanding. Not a lot of wisdom. Well, let's just stop. This is not in your notes. It just popped in my head. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? <coughs> knowledge is just facts, but wisdom is God's perspective. Yeah. You can have facts and figures in your head and know a lot of data. Wisdom is how do you actually put that into practice and live in a way that's guided by godly principles living it out. So there may be a lot of people that have knowledge, but there's not a lot of wisdom in how they live. So 1 Corinthians, or, yeah, 1 Corinthians 2, 6-8, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age 
or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If, if the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the age of Christ understood who Jesus truly was, they wouldn't have crucified him. Now, it was God's will for them to crucify him because it you know, was a fulfillment of prophecy, but they were confused. So, Nebuchadnezzar is, a, is, a, is an epitome of this age in which we live. Paranoia, fear, lack of peace, having everything this world has to desire, but still not, never being content. Okay, so he is a, he's a picture of a paranoid, hostile man who is out, literally out, out of control. He's, he's about ready to destroy his sorcerers because they're not interpreting his dream. Okay, now let's contrast Nebuchadnezzar with Daniel. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 14. And let's read about Daniel. And this is going to be a long section because then we're going to get to the dream, which is, so there's three sections. First, Nebuchadnezzar's weird behavior, then Daniel, and then actually the, the, the dream. So let's, let's read verses 14 through 30. <clears throat> They're about ready to go kill all of the companions of Daniel and his companions. So verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to the house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and season. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you've given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said, and, and said thus, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, remember the king changed his name, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen in its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanter, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals the mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have had more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. Okay, so let's, let's unpack this. Daniel displays three character traits showing his true dependence upon the living God. 
And remember, last week, for those of you that were here, let me just remind you. Last week, the big question is, how, do you, how are you going to sing the songs of Zion in Babylon? How are you going to live as a citizen of the kingdom, in, in, having one foot in God's kingdom and one foot in this world? You have, you have to live a godly life. And the question is, how is Daniel going to live for Christ or live for God in the kingdom of this age? And so the first thing we see in Daniel is he has spiritual wisdom and insight. Verse 14, he has discretion. He has prudence. It says he replied with prudence and discretion. Now, it's very interesting. Now, the Hebrew language is very interesting. The word prudence there in the original language here, actually in Aramaic, not Hebrew. In the Aramaic, it means to taste. You could say Daniel had good taste. Now, does that mean he knew how to dress well? That's not what it meant. It conveys the idea that Daniel had spiritual insight and sound judgment. He developed a spiritual taste through his time alone with God to know how to act wisely under challenging situations. Here's the point. When you spend time with God in prayer and Bible study, and that time is cultivated, you develop a taste for wisdom. You develop a godly mind. You're transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so that gives you godly wisdom to know how to act in certain situations. So Daniel had spent time with the Lord. And so he knew how to wisely approach the king with this prudence. So he's a man of spiritual maturity. He doesn't just rush into the situation hoping that God's going to bail him out. He has spent time with the Lord. And so he understands prudence. Proverbs 8 10 through 13. Take my instructions instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. So sometimes the Proverbs talk about wisdom, discretion, and prudence all being part of this this godly package of of godly wisdom. So number one, he had developed a taste of godly wisdom. He was a man of prudence. He was a man of spiritual um, integrity, spiritual wisdom, spiritual maturity. But secondly, and we'll see this all throughout the book of Daniel, he's a man of prayer. Chapter 6 and chapter 9, you'll see that, especially chapter 9, this long recorded prayer. What's the first thing Daniel does? You see it there in verse 17? What does he do? Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Misael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions. And what does he say? He told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this, this mystery. What did he say? He called a prayer meeting. He basically called his friends together and said, guys, we need to pray. We need to ask for wisdom. Um, basically, this is the nature of prayer. Prayer is not demanding God. It's coming and saying, we really need God's help. We're approaching with the posture of humility, knowing that we're totally dependent. And we seek mercy from the God of heaven. An interesting language. We're going to seek mercy. We're not going to go just demand God to give us the answer. Because God may not give us the answer. God may not help us interpret the dream. We don't know. He's sovereign. But we're going to seek his mercy. Now, I had a pastor friend told me this story one time. He said he went on vacation with his family, and um, he visited a church on his own vacation. And he didn't know what the church, he didn't know what type of church the church was, knew a little bit about it. 
Um, but he went in and the pastor started praying and, and basically the pastor started praying like this. The, not my friend, but the pastor at the church said, Dear Heavenly Father, I command you to do such and such and I demand of you to do such and such. And my friend said he looked up to see if the guy was still in the pulpit. He hadn't, he hadn't been like struck by lightning. <laughs> I command of you. That is not the way we approach God. We don't come into God and say, I demand that you do this, God. These guys, Daniel says to his friends, hey, we need to have a prayer meeting. We need to go home to our houses and let's seek the mercy of the Lord. Let's beseech the Lord to give his mercy to show us what this dream is all about. Um, and so God does answer their prayer in an act of grace. What do you see there in verse 19? Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So God answered their prayer. Now, he goes and prays to God as a way of thanking God. So we have there in verses 20 through 23 an actual recorded prayer of, of Daniel. And I love recorded prayers in the Bible because the recorded prayers help us to know how we should pray. If you ever want to know how to pray, now Jesus gave us the Lord's Prayer as a model, and it's pretty short, but um, I think about 10 years ago, we did a Bible study on Sunday mornings I wrote for the church and it was like a six-week study, and we went through six or seven recorded prayers in the Bible, from Nehemiah to Paul to Daniel. And it's just important to see how men and women of, of God prayed. And so let's look at this as a model. And so let's just kind of look at the elements of this prayer and see what Daniel does. If it's a recorded prayer, it would be helpful for us to know what he does. So he starts off with blessing God. Blessed be the name of our God forever and ever. And notice what he calls God. He calls God the God of heaven. Then Daniel blessed, actually there in verse 19, God blessed the God of heaven. The God of heaven. The living God over all things. How does Jesus tell us to pray? How did Jesus tell us to pray in the, in the Lord's Prayer? How does he start? Pray like this, our Father in heaven hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We address, why, is it important that, why is it important that we say our Father in heaven? Is that just where God, is that like just a little thing we tag onto our prayers? God in heaven. Why, why is it important to say our Father in heaven or God of heaven? What does that do in our praying? Like when you address God as God in heaven, what are you doing in, the, in that moment? You're basically saying, I'm a creature. He's the creator. I'm an earthbound sinner. He is the heavenly Father who dwells in unapproachable light, and I have the privilege to approach him only through the merits of Christ, but he, he's God and I'm not. He, he's in heaven. He's enthroned. So um, here's the beauty of prayer. You have permission to approach God in a very close and intimate way. Yet at the same time, he's the sovereign creator of all things. It's kind of a paradox. Like, you have permission to go talk to the most powerful, awesome, sovereign king of heaven. Do not be afraid, because Christ gives you access to that. So the first thing that Daniel does is he blesses the God of heaven, just, just like Jesus, our Father in heaven. And then, this will cause a lot of theological discussions. We may, I may talk about that tonight, maybe or may not. He focuses on God's absolute sovereignty. So let me ask you a question. 
for those of you that have been around manual for a while. Is God, some of you are like, yes, you know the answer. No, you can say no, disagree. Is God absolutely sovereign? Do you want a God that's any less than? Probably not. <laughs> now, look at this passage of Scripture. Verse 21. He changes times and seasons. Okay, we can understand that. I mean, there's four seasons, right? And God sovereignly superintends when fall moves to winter and when winter moves to spring. And obviously God doesn't, I don't think he directly, he does that through nature. Okay, like through natural things. But God's the one who does it. But look at that thing that says right there. He removes kings and sets up kings. Let me ask you a question. Does God ordain for us to have the leaders that we have? Okay, it means we shouldn't vote then, right? <laughs> That's not what, you can abuse that and say, well, if God's already got it figured out, I don't, I don't need to vote. Okay, so I don't know how this all works. But God sovereignly ordains who is in positions of leadership over us. Now, Don and I were having a conversation yesterday at the dinner table about politics and all that stuff. And, and I just basically said to her, I said, when a country is under, you know a country's under God's judgment when God gives you bad leaders. Because sometimes God will give you what you deserve. Okay, why don't we have any better candidates or anybody better? How can we have nobody better than this? Well, maybe that's because it's God's judgment on a nation that's gone so far out of control that God says, I'm just going to give the leaders you deserve. Um, now, that does not mean we're not involved. Okay, so, all right. Oh, I got a whiteboard in here. You guys okay if I mosey on over to the whiteboard? Okay, so, those are going to live stream. I guess they're So, you've got God, and then you've got what we would call secondary causes. And then you have, like, God's will accomplished. Now, let's ask a few questions. Is God's will always accomplished? Yes. Does God always directly do it? And what I mean by directly is God always the one that's doing the action. No. Sometimes, but oftentimes it's through secondary causes. What are the secondary causes? Usually, usually what? Humans. <laughs> okay. So let's think about this in the realm of politics. Is God going to get the leader in place that he wants? How is that going to happen? Is God going to go into the voting booth and like move everybody's... I mean, no. We're going to choose, and God's going to work through that to get his accomplished will. Same thing with Jesus. Was it God's will for Jesus to be crucified? Yes. But he used secondary causes. He used Herod and Pilate and the Jews and the Roman you know, soldiers to actually accomplish that. So God can get his will accomplished without directly doing it. He often does it through secondary causes. But the point is, is you, you kick the can all the way back, and who's behind it all? God. God is doing this. Okay. So Job 12, 23, he makes nations great, and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Leads them away. So Daniel's praying. Let's get back to Daniel. Daniel's praying. He's blessing God, the God of heaven. He's praising God for his absolute sovereignty. But then he also acknowledges that God alone is the one that gave him the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding. 
he's basically there in verse 21. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness and the light dwells in him. So he's basically saying, Father in heaven, you're absolutely sovereign. You're under no obligation to, I'm paraphrasing Daniel, you're under no obligation to give me the answer, but you did. It could only come from you. I asked for your mercy, I asked for the answer, and in your sovereignty, you gave me understanding. And then how does he end? He walks on by and says, yeah, I deserved it, right? God, you're obligated to give that to me. What does he say? He ends with thanksgiving. He's thankful. Verse 23, to you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you've given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we've asked of you, for you've made known to us the king's matter. So he ends with thanksgiving. And, I, and let's just talk, talk about thanksgiving for a moment. Sometimes when you pray and God answers your prayer, do you thank him? Or you just kind of expect, oh, that's what God does. He's supposed to answer my prayer. I'm guilty of that. You pray for something and God answers it, and then you're just like, okay, you kind of move on. You don't like stop it. Thank you, God, for answering that prayer. You didn't have to do that. That's 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 wonderful. Okay, so remember, this is a contrast between Nebuchadnezzar, paranoid man, ruthless man. Daniel's a solid, spiritual, mature man of prayer. But here's what we also find out: not only is Daniel a man of great spiritual insight, to act with wisdom and humility. And not only is he a man of deep worship and prayer, but the third thing we see is that Daniel is a man of boldness. Okay. What does he do? What, what did he just hear the decree of the king say? If you, don't interpret my te- my, if you don't interpret my dream, I'm tearing you limb from limb. So Daniel could have said, okay, boy, like got his, got his boys together. Okay, we're going to go hide. We're, we're, you know, we're gonna, what are we going to do here? But he actually, because he's been emboldened through this prayer, he goes directly to Arioch, the king's bodyguard, basically, and says, I want to have a meeting with the king. So Daniel steps up the plate and says, okay, God's given me wisdom. God's given me insight. God's given me courage. Now's the time to act. I'm going to confidently go before the king. And I'm going to tell him emphatically, I can let you know what your dream is. Go ahead. Is he still really young at this time, yeah. too? He's probably only like 17 or 18. Yeah, he's probably still a teenager. Yeah. That's yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and this is the early part of Daniel under Nebuchadnezzar. He's a young, yeah, he's a young man. Yeah. And so the risk, and then we talked about the risk last week, the risk of not eating the food. I mean, so Daniel is really, if you look, look at a man of courage, a young man of courage, he was willing to stand against the tide, and he was willing to, and it came from his time alone with God. I mean, God gave him that supernatural boldness and, and insight. And so, um, Daniel goes to Arioch and says, hey, listen, I want to have a, I, I can interpret the king's dream. And then um, he goes before the king. And I want you to notice something that Daniel does, very important in verse 28. I love this. Let's start in verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. So basically, what does he say? None of your guys are going to be able to do this. So don't even, I'm kind of paraphrasing, don't even waste your time on these astrologers because they're not going to be able to do it. But I want you to notice what he says in verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed. Notice what he does. 
He gives credit to the sovereign God who rules. I'm not the one interpreting this dream for you, king. This is coming from the sovereign God of heaven who's revealed it. The one true God. Not your pagan magicians. They're never going to be able to do this. What's coming is directly from God himself giving you the answer. And so he is there. He could have given the credit to himself. Think about what he could have done. Hey, king, I can interpret your dream for you because I'm all that. I'm the script. What are you going to say, Mark? You, oh, okay. You're just agreeing. It's like, I'm all that. and I, you know, I, I, I'm this great dream interpreter. Pick me. Pick me, king. He doesn't do that. He goes in there and says with confidence, you guys aren't going to be able to do this, but God can. And I'm giving all the credit to a sovereign God who alone is the one that's going to give you the answer. And he even says that. Look at verse 30. There's a little bit of humility there in verse 30. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. I'm not all that king. I'm not any better than anybody else, but the only reason it's happening is because God has sovereignly worked. And I'm dependent upon him. I pray to him. And I mean, think about the boldness. King Nebuchadnezzar probably has no clue who the God of heaven is. He's a pagan king. And Daniel's using all this God talk. I, put, I mean, not everything's recorded here, here, but I mean, I'm sure Daniel was not afraid to go in there and say, I've spent time in prayer on my knees. The God of heaven has revealed this to me. Your pagan philosophers can't do it. My God can. I'm going to interpret the dream to you. I'm giving all the credit to the God of heaven. I bless this God of heaven. And it's not because I'm all that, because he's all that. I mean, that's, that's pretty bold. I mean, basically, it's really the attitude we should all have to put Christ up on the throne that he rightfully is as opposed to putting ourselves there. All right. So as we see this story unfold, we see the contradiction between the king's pitiful illusion and Daniel's powerful intercession. Nebuchadnezzar is marked by fear, insecurity, and paranoia, while Daniel is marked by wisdom, prayer, and boldness. You see the, you see the contrast between the two? The kingdom of this age is marked by fear, insecurity, paranoia. The kingdom of Christ is marked by wisdom, prayer, and boldness. All right. Now we get to what well, gets a little funky and weird. The interpretation of the dream. Man, we might get we might get done really early tonight. I don't know. We'll see. You guys, unless you guys have a lot of questions, so we'll just keep going. Well, don't you think Daniel was contrasting that the God of heaven is the one true God in contrast to their false gods who were really like evil spirits? Oh, yeah. But just, again, just like in Exodus, it's this God is always showing himself <coughs> yeah. to the unseen realm. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these, um, yeah, I mean, basically saying, you know, these so called, what are they called? Astro he, he gives them names. Magicians, this is in verse 27. Enchanter, magician, astrologer. That's pretty. These satanically inspired. And we talked about this last week. These men were satanically inspired um, astrologers. And they were spirit mediums. They were like talking and necromancers. I mean, it was all basically demonic, occultic stuff. And Daniel just comes in and says, Your occultic guys can't hold a candle to the true God of heaven who can do this. And what's funny is, think about this for a moment. 
has Nebuchadnezzar told Daniel the dream? Remember the point? Tell me the dream or I'm going to kill you. Well, what does Daniel have to do? Does he have to wait around for Nebuchadnezzar to tell him? No, he goes in. So we'll find out. He goes in and tells him the dream. So let's keep reading. This is now the interpretation of the dream. So this is a long section too. So let's read 31 through 49. All right. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like a chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell you the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hands he has given... Wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the earth. There shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of the, those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall, be, it shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever, just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And great God, a great God is made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Okay, let's stop right there. Let's tread through this slowly, because there's a lot of symbolism related to world empires and world powers in literal history. Okay? So what do we see here? And, there, and scholars and commentators aren't in agreement on this. So I'm not, I don't know if I'm... Remember what I said last week? There may come a point where I say, I really don't know what we're talking about here. And that's okay. I'll just... I don't know what we're talking about here. So, um, so the head is gold. The torso and arms are silver. Thighs are bronze. Legs are iron. And then the feet are a mixture of clay and iron. And then this stone, not a cut stone, but a stone made without... A natural stone... Dashes the statue like a hammer, shattering it into pieces. Okay. And what remains is the stone, which becomes a huge mountain and fills the whole earth. And that would be kind of a freaky dream. Stones destroying stuff and things, you know. So Daniel explains the dream. Now, who is the current king of the world? Nebuchadnezzar. He has all power and authority. Remember back in verse, um, well, it says there in verse 37, 
You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. God has set you up. Remember, God sets up kings and removes kings. God has given you, God has given you to be the king. So Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. And what Nebuchadnezzar needs to remember from the start here is that any authority and wealth or power he has is because God has given it to him. God has set you up as king, Nebuchadnezzar. Don't forget that. You're in the position as king because God has set you up as king. Now, one of my favorite verses is when John the Baptist says in John 3.27, right before he must increase and I must decrease, John the Baptist said this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Everything you have is a gift of God. You can't claim anything that you earned or deserved or created or thought or built or made or achieved that does not come from the grace of God in your life. Okay, now, head of gold, Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar. What's next is silver, right? Okay. And I'm going to say most scholars would agree that this is the Medo-Persian Empire that came right after Babylon as the great world power in history. So the, the Medes and Persians came together, the Persian Empire, Medo-Persian, but mainly the Persian Empire, they conquered Babylon next in history. And they reigned for a while. If you remember um, when the nation of Israel was allowed to go back, yeah, Cyrus and Artaxerxes, those were Persian kings. So during the end of the exile, when they went back to rebuild the wall in Nehemiah and Ezra, the Persian empires on the Babylon's kind of out of the picture by then. All right. The next is bronze. But what's the next big empire in world history? The Greek Empire. Greece would rule the earth. Remember who the leader of Greece was? Alexander the Great. He sat down and wept in his late 20s because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. You guys remember that? Yeah. And then the fourth kingdom of iron. Iron fist. This would be Rome the Roman Empire, which was the largest empire as far as... I'm watching some, I'm, I'm watching some movies on... Um, a, a documentary on Netflix on the Roman Empire. It's kind of gotten me interested to see how much they expanded, like even before the time of Christ, and just, just how much they got you know, around the world. Um, now, the feet are confusing because it's a mixture of iron and clay and it's a divided kingdom and it doesn't speak of a fifth empire. So I don't know what that means. Does anybody have a, does anybody have a study Bible that talks about the feet of clay that may say what that means? Anybody? Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. This is where it's like, I, I don't really, I mean, I don't know what the feet of clay are. But here's the point. Okay. The most important thing about this dream is this. It's not necessarily the world empires that come on the stage of human history. We know that historically these happened. The ultimate kingdom 
is the one that God will set up. There's a future kingdom that God is going to set up. It's going to surpass all of these worldly kingdoms. And so look at verse 44. In those days of those kings, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Okay, that's, that's a strong statement about this kingdom that God's going to set up. And there's four things about this kingdom that God's going to set up. Number one, God sets it up. God is the one that creates kingdoms. Number two, it's an indestructible kingdom. All those other earthly kingdoms are going to crumble, but the kingdom of God that he builds will never be destroyed. It will be a victorious kingdom. It will never end. It's not going to pop up one day and then be overtaken by another kingdom. And then it's a universal kingdom. It will fill the entire earth and subdue all the nations. It's not just a Jewish kingdom, but a kingdom of all tribes, tongues, languages, and people. Now, here's the amazing thing about this prophecy. Hopefully you caught it. What inaugurates this kingdom? A stone. A stone. A special stone not cut by human hands. Who's the stone? Christ. Jesus. Jesus is the stone, the cornerstone, the one who is going to come and inaugurate this kingdom. This is a prophecy about Jesus as the living cornerstone. Now, where in the world do you hear this language of Jesus being the stone? Well, there's a Messianic psalm in Psalm 2, talking about Jesus. Psalm 2, 6-9. As for me, this is God speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Christ is going to rule over all the kingdoms of this world. And then Acts 4, when Peter is preaching, what does he say about Jesus? Acts 4, 10 through 12. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you, the man that was healed. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So here's the, here's the point of this dream. I don't think Daniel knew the implication of what this meant. God will bring his kingdom through something unordinary and straightforward. A stone. Okay. But... This stone will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ himself. And many will stumble over the stone. He will be a stumbling block. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24? Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, a stumbling stone to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, 
here's where it gets a little dicey in interpretation. When does this kingdom take effect? Is it speaking of a day way off in the future, or is it related to these four kingdoms? Look at verse 44. What does verse 44 say? In the days of those kings, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Okay, so it says the days of those kings, God will set up a kingdom. Now, let me read my notes because I want to make sure I say it properly, okay? This coming kingdom comes in stages on human history. It was unveiled in Babylon, then in Medo-Persia, then in Greece, and finally in Rome. We know that all four of these kingdoms are broken and that the stone fills the whole earth in the days of those kings, not someday off into the future. But it comes into clearer focus when we think about the fourth empire, Rome. What happened in the fourth empire, Rome? It was during the time of the height of the Roman Empire when in Judea, Palestine, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, was raised in Nazareth, and began his public ministry in Galilee, preaching the inauguration of the kingdom. Okay. So, technically, Jesus wasn't born yet until the final Roman Empire. So God made this prophecy that this kingdom would be established, and this stone would come and establish this kingdom and dash all these other kingdoms to pieces. And the culmination of that is in the fourth kingdom, Roman Empire is when Jesus is born. Okay? Now, this is all kingdom talk. The stone's going to establish a kingdom. God's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to crush kingdoms. So, let's ask the question. When Jesus came on the scene, the first thing out of his mouth, what did he say? What was Jesus' message? In Mark 1, 14 and 15... Now after John, that was John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, the moment that Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, that was the fulfillment of that prophecy to Daniel that the stone was coming to crush the kingdoms. Now, did it happen all of a sudden? Did, did these kingdoms get crushed when Jesus started preaching the gospel? No. Have the kingdoms been crushed today? No, there's, there's been a lot of different kingdoms. Come and go, come and go. Now, ultimately, will there be a final kingdom set up that tears down all earthly kingdoms and is the eternal kingdom? Yes, we have, that hasn't happened yet. But it started when Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected, comes on the scene and begins preaching the kingdom of the gospel. And what is the message? Repent and believe the gospel. But here's the hope, even from this chapter. The great news and the great hope of this chapter. God's kingdom will triumph. This is the main point. Okay, Don't get so bogged down in the symbolism of the statue and the dream that you fail to see that the ultimate point is that all the kingdoms of this world will be shattered and only God's kingdom will prevail. Revelation 11, 15. This is the Hallelujah course, Handel's Messiah. And the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. That's, 
That hasn't happened yet. Okay, so let's talk about the kingdom of God. This is not in your notes, but... Okay, the kingdom of God is spoken of in three different ways. Okay? When Jesus came, he preached the kingdom of God is at hand. So when Christ came on the scene, he preached the kingdom. The kingdom is a past reality when Christ came. Okay. Right now is God building his kingdom. Is the kingdom of God present right now? Yes, it's present in our hearts. It's present in our lives as God is ruling and reigning through his people. There's like the present kingdom of God. But is there going to be a future kingdom of God that hasn't been established yet? Yes, when Christ comes back, there will be the ultimate future kingdom of God. And so we need to think of the, don't just think of the kingdom of God as something off in the future. Think of it three, like in different stages. It came when Jesus started preaching it. It's here right now, and it'll be ultimately consummated when Christ comes back in the fullness. Okay. So we can say that God is building his kingdom now. Um, because Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says this. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Now, let's see how Nebuchadnezzar responds to the dream. Daniel interpreted it. We may not know fully what it means, but let's just summarize it, that there's these worldly kingdoms that are going to come on the scene, and eventually the stone's going to come and destroy them all and set up the ultimate kingdom. And so this is kind of like a big picture of history where Jesus is going to come, and he's the cornerstone, and he's the one who's going to be ushering in the ultimate kingdom of God, this eternal, indestructible, final kingdom. Okay, now verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. <laughs> Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. Okay, now, here's the question that's plagued people. Is Nebuchadnezzar's transformation legit? Wait till next week <laughs> to answer that question. Um, I don't think it is at this point. I think he's just happy that somebody gave him the answer. And notice that he doesn't really praise, I mean, he praises God in a generic way, like he basically pays homage to Daniel, says, okay, your God's the God of gods and Lord of lords. He does it, he says, your God. You're, you got a cool God, Daniel. Now, what would it, what would be a true transformation in King Nebuchadnezzar? My God, I worship this God. So we really don't know Nebuchadnezzar's heart at this point, but the thing that all of us should say is, truly, my God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and king of kings. So, we live in two kingdoms. This present age and the age to come. We are part of the kingdoms of this world. I.e. right now, these United States of America is the kingdom in which we live. 
but our citizenship is in God's kingdom. Okay, so here's the question. I don't know if you know this, but you have dual citizenship. Okay, you have dual citizenship. You're a citizen of the United States of America. That's where you were born. Hopefully most of you were born here. You're a citizen of the United States. But ultimately, your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. That's your true home. So how will you live out this dual citizenship? Will you be like Nebuchadnezzar and fret and panic and amass for yourselves treasures for this world and find ultimate security in what this world has to offer? Things that are passing away? Are you going to be plagued by doubt and fret and fear? I'm going to lose this and like just angst, anxious. Or are you going to be like Daniel and humbly depend on Christ, who is the true stone, the king of kings, upon whom our eyes should be fixed. So we live in the tension of the already not yet. Okay, this is the already not yet. God has already established his kingdom, but it's not yet fully happened. So we're kind of living in this tension, the already not yet. Yes, Christ has already conquered. Yes, Jesus rose from the grave, but he hasn't come back yet. So we're kind of living in that tension. And so as we look at the kingdoms of this world, we're tempted to think that God's not sovereign. I must fret. Things are out of control. And we need to realize that ultimately, God is the one that sets up kingdoms. God's the one that tear down his kingdoms. And ultimately, the kingdom is going to be ruled through Christ. And so here's the question. In your heart of hearts, which kingdom are you really living for? Which kingdom occupies your thoughts, your affections, your money, your priorities? Which kingdom? Are you part of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of this world? Or are you looking forward to that ultimate kingdom with Jesus Christ as a cornerstone, that eternal kingdom? Because we live in both right now. We're not fully there yet. You have dual citizenship. And so God's kingdom will prevail over the kingdoms of this world. Which kingdom are you living for? And here's the answer. You will know which kingdom you're living for based on how much you spend your time, resources, money, and energy. Wow. Do you guys have questions? Because we got done really early for a long chapter like this. I didn't think it would go this long. What are some questions you guys have? I may not be able to answer them. I gotta extend the time out here, at least another 10 minutes. Doesn't you have to be on Daniel, be on anything theological or anything. I can answer your question. Yes, Mark. Mark's like, okay. Yeah, you, you asked about the, the break and at the end here with the iron and the clay. Mm -hmm. was, it, was there anything stupid like split of the Byzantine or the Roman churches? It, yeah, I mean it could be, yeah. I mean it, I don't know if that was ever the thought of. Yeah, I mean, the Roman church split between Constantinople and Rome, the Eastern Church and the Western Church, right. but that was like even further late, like, what was it 1052, the Great Schism? Maybe off a few years, but like, yeah. Could be. I'll take your word for that. Okay. <laughs> I hope. No, yeah. But, um, also, the, uh, the sort of prophetic aspect of the, the cornerstone, the verse from Isaiah 814 about uh, a cornerstone being laid in Zion and yeah. a stumbling block yeah. was referenced by Peter, I think, as yeah. well, that sort of is exactly like you're talking about, the, the breaking on the stone um, 
basically any kingdom that is not of God. Yeah, so, okay, I, I know where we can go, unless somebody has a question. We can always go to the book of Revelation. Okay, so, there is an image of Jesus that is not the popular image that people think of Jesus in today's culture. I'm not talking about Christians, but when people think about Jesus, what do they often think about? A nice guy with some wise sayings that kind of walked around with, you know, hippie hair and Birkenstocks and, you know, had some great sayings. Okay. But that passage in Psalm that I read, Psalm 2, how he's going to dash the nations with the rod of iron. Okay, turn to Revelation chapter 19. I do know Revelation better than Daniel. They're kind of the same, yeah. So let's just look at the image of, okay, so if Jesus, if this stone is going to come at the time of the Roman Empire, in Jesus' first coming, he came proclaiming the kingdom of God and he was crucified. So in his first coming, Jesus was the slaughtered lamb of God who was crucified and rose again. In his second coming, how is he going to come? Let's read it. Revelation 19, verse 11. Everybody there? Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. That's just another word for crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, is that the image that a lot of people have of Jesus? The conquering king coming back on a white horse to rule and to reign and to judge. Now, for us as believers, that's a, that's a victory for us. For unbelievers, um, there's an interesting thing here. What, what happens right before this? Go back and read. Let's go back and read um, verse 6. We're still in Revelation 19. I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. For behold, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And behold, the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words. And I fell down to his feet to worship. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, obviously this is a metaphorical language, but what happens at the marriage supper of the Lamb? It's the culmination of the kingdom where we as God's people metaphorically eat with Jesus. Okay, right now when we take the Lord's Supper, what are we picturing? We're picturing the nourishment and the sustenance we gain from Christ. And then the marriage supper of the Lamb is kind of like the ultimate. We get to be with Jesus and, and eat. So it's a feast where we're feasting together with Christ as our, our, our Lord. And it's a glorious time of joy. Okay. 
Then he comes back. And then I want you to see another feast. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the captains and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and the riders and the flesh of all the men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who was in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The marriage supper of the Lamb and the, I guess you would call it the supper of the unbelievers by the birds of the air. Now, a lot of people talk about the battle of Armageddon, the great battle. I dare you to read Revelation and find a battle anywhere. It says they gather for battle, but there is no battle. Notice what it says right there. Verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with the armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Well, and the beast was captured, the false prophet, and you know, Jesus just comes back. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that he's going to destroy them with his breath, Jesus, when he comes back. So there is no war. It's they gather against Jesus, but this is him coming back in power and glory, ultimately destroying the, nation, the, the kingdoms of this earth, those who have not repented and believed in power and glory, to bring about that stone crashing those nations, whatever nations are left when Jesus comes back. Um, so it kind of comes full circle in the book of Revelation when you see Jesus coming back on the white horse, striking down these nations. Um, and it started back in Daniel with this prophecy of this cornerstone coming. Jesus is born, he preaches the gospel of the kingdom, he dies, he rises again. We're living in that already not yet, and when Jesus comes back, he's going to inaugurate the ultimate kingdom by dashing the nation's that are not repentant towards him. That took some time. Any questions? More comments? Don't you think it's amazing that, that all of Scripture brings us to that place of, of recognizing God's right to rule on earth? Oh, yeah. I mean, that that's really the purpose of all. Yeah, it's just that... We have to come to that place of God has the right to rule oh, and yeah. reign. And Amen. from Genesis to Revelation, yeah. is the, you know, yeah. that's the narrative. Yeah, and, and I guess, Andre, why do people not want to submit to that? I just that there's people don't want to submit to God's right yeah. to rule and reign. Go, go back to Revelation just for a moment. I know you have, I mean, we should have just spent all the time in Revelation 19. This is the second, we're backing up. So at the beginning of 19, I want you to hear the song of what they're singing in heaven. And it goes back to what Andre just said. God's right to rule and reign. So Revelation 19. This is what they're saying in heaven. Okay, so let's just talk. Whatever they're saying in heaven, can there be any sin to it? It's got to be perfect. It's recorded for us here. So this is the heavenly chorus. What are they saying about God? All right, Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with their immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That's talking about Babylon, the harlot. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. 
And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, great and small. But verse 2, they're praising God for his judgment. We can't conceive of that. We often want to praise God for his mercy, his love, his grace. When was the last time you praised God for his righteous judgment? Now, we can't conceive of that because we're sinful right now, but in heaven, when God destroys his enemies, as hard as it is for us to think about that right now, there will be a righteous joy in heaven that God vindicated his holiness by judging rightly. That those nations will be dashed by Jesus. Now, we can't conceive of that because we're like, oh, I just like kind of, that bothers me. You won't be bothered by it in heaven because <laughs> you'll be perfect. But this is the psalm. They're, they're praising God for his righteous judgments. So all the, the, the theme throughout all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God is absolutely sovereign. He has the right to rule and reign. He does that through Jesus. The only way we can escape that righteous judgment is through a relationship with Jesus, the cornerstone. Many stumble over the cornerstone. But when we trust in Jesus... Our sins are forgiven. We have eternal life. And then we become part of the kingdom that never ends. That's hope for the believer. Scary for the unbeliever. But uh, there's no middle ground. The Bible won't let you have that. All right, any other final thoughts? Hello. All right. We got you to 745, which is good. So... Um, I will be hanging out here for a little bit, but let's pray. And then you guys can go get ready to pick up your kids or you can take off. Father, thank you for this time tonight. I know, like we said, Daniel's a little bit challenging for us, but I'm thankful that we're able to look at just your sovereignty, your power. Jesus, we know that you are the chief cornerstone that has come to die for our sins and rise again and that you're coming back in power and glory. And Lord, we want to be um, thankful and, and just relying upon you and trusting in you. And Lord, I pray that everybody in this room has a relationship with you so that on that day, when you do come back, it's not a day of fear, but it's a day of joy uh, because we know you as our Lord and Savior. And so Lord, help us to rely upon your, your grace and help us understand that you do have the right to rule and to reign. And ultimately, your kingdom will prevail over all things. And we can have great confidence in that. So we love you, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Finish.